Hey everyone, it's Tom. Just want to fill you in on the latest, and that is Christopher and I have decided to release Famous Lost Words every two weeks instead of every week. So when you don't see us in next week's podcast feed, don't be alarmed, we'll be back in two weeks. And while you're here, just a reminder to tell all your friends about Famous Lost Words. It really will help us make more shows. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. As our audience continues to grow, we have many brand new listeners. So let's explain. We have access to one of the greatest archives of music interviews in the world. This is not an exaggeration. From Paul McCartney to George Michael to Ozzy Osbourne to Pat Benatar to Tina Turner and everywhere in between. The only downside is we have a lot of Kiss interviews. (laughs) Yes, indeed we do. Christopher... Don't hate me because I have good taste when it comes to bands in garish makeup and questionable lyrics, okay? (laughs) We also have, by the way, a phenomenal collection of Canadian artists from superstars like Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Rush, Bare Naked Ladies to Triumph, Prism, Frozen Ghost, Lighthouse, Men Without Hats, and Martha and the Muffins. In fact, you can hear many of those artists in more than 85 very binge-worthy past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you hear your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to smash that subscribe button if you like what you hear. Tom, this week it's part two of our Salute to the Music and Artists of Motown. Mm -hmm. We've got Stevie Wonder talking about his fans knowing him just as well as his friends do if you listen closely to his music. Mm -hmm. Lionel Richie talking about attending what he calls Motown University. Love that. We also have Mary Wilson of the Supremes, who we tragically lost not long ago, talking about why being a Supreme was a dream come true. And we also have the ultimate Supreme. Is that La Suprema? (laughs) (laughs) Diana Ross. Talking about how she and Mary were actually quite close in the early days. And of course, Christopher, you wrote songs with Diana, so you know her well. And you also have worked with songwriting legend Lamont Dozier. And I want to ask you about that. And you have to tell me about this fantastic video of you dancing with the Temptations. This is so much Mm -hmm. fun. (laughs) So let's get started with Stevie Wonder. A classic superstition Stevie Wonder from 1972 as we celebrate the music of Motown on Famous Lost Words. One of the greatest and most influential stars to come out of Motown is Stevie Wonder. He broke in 1963 at age 13 with the song Fingertips. Hmm. He also wrote from an early age and so he wasn't dependent on the Motown teams to come up with hits. A decade later, he released a string of albums that match any of the greatest, most prolific artist outputs ever, with 1972's The Music of My Mind, followed by Talking Book, Inner Visions, Fulfilling This First Finale, and in 1976, four years later, Songs in the Key of Life. The last three, all Grammy Album of the Year winners. He sold over Mm. 100 million records. He's won 25 Grammys, the most for a solo artist. Boy, boy. In this interview, Stevie talks about the Motown label in his early days. In 1961, Motown, as you may have heard, was a studio, I believe, out of nowhere. No one ever expected that uh, there would be music coming out of Detroit. The the Motown sound and the Motown sound. um, I think it took everyone by surprise. The Motown reviews, uh, they called them also the Motown specials, had... Back then, like the biggest acts, like you know, the, the records were like riding high on the charts, 
And um, Little Stevie Wonder was not the headliner. And, and, and at that time, Fingertips was not out. So the response, I guess, was because I was little. <laughs> and um, shake, Stevie shaking his head 50,000 revolutions per second. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those Motortown reviews must have been wild with some of the greatest music ever on one stage. And not only do they have a great time, as we're going to hear from some of the interviews coming up in the show, but musically, they must have influenced each other so much. They must have learned so much from listening to and watching the other performers doing their thing. Yes, for sure. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible to think. Have you seen Stevie live? I did. I saw him. Honestly, Christopher, it's one of the most recent concerts I've seen. I saw him, I think, 2018. Um, it was, uh, you know, one of those casino shows, but it was really good. He honestly could sing just as well as he always has oh yeah musically it was brilliant it did veer off into the self-indulgent at times but that's okay it's stevie he can kind of do whatever he wanted but boy when he played the hits and even when he didn't even when he was kind of noodling off into into these kind of obscure little things he was still fascinating um i need to tell you that some of the highlights of that of the show that i saw uh, were the songs Higher Ground, Master Blaster, mm. I Wish, You Are the Sunshine of My Life, and yes, to my chagrin, he even played I Just Called to Say I Love You, but I did oh. forgive him. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but I want to tell you one very, very, very quick story about the yeah. guy who was the opening act for the Stevie concert, and it was just a DJ. So it was a, a DJ who came out and played really up-tempo music. So he'd play September by Earth, Wind & Fire, and he'd play Celebration by Kool & The Gang, right? Getting everybody going, and it was great. It was fun. It was very jubilant. But as a music lover, Christopher, two things happened that blew my mind and made me almost angry, okay? Because the DJ comes on the mic and said, hey, who here remembers the music of Motown? And everybody goes, yeah. And he goes, okay, so let's play a big Motown hit. And then he played Stand By Me by Ben E. King. Oops. <laughs> and I'm, you know, oh. I'm looking at my girlfriend. I'm going, uh, Renee, that's not a Motown hit. That was not. And she's going, relax and enjoy, Tom. <laughs> you know what? Yes, she did. But it got worse. It got worse, Christopher, Uh-oh. because he said, speaking of Motown, who here remembers the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin? Okay, one. Aretha was not a Motown artist, but she was from Detroit, which is Motortown, so I'll give you that. But you know what song he played (laughs) to celebrate Aretha Franklin? I'm afraid to ask. He played Rescue Me. By Fontella Bass? He played Rescue Me by Fontella Bass, which is not an Aretha Franklin song, nor is Fontella Bass Aretha Franklin. (laughs) (laughs) I just about ran up on the stage and pulled the needle off. I, I got to say, I, I feel like we've provided a forum here on this show, a very sort of useful function of our podcast to give you the opportunity to get that off your chest because I oh, can tell it was bugging you. I am you. so glad that I got to tell you this because I've been sitting on that since November of 2018 when it first happened wow. and I've been kind of quietly stewing about it since then. Well. Now, I've seen Stevie a bunch of times, right back to the 1970s when he toured with Wonder Love, and it was one of the most incredible shows I've ever seen. But I think I told you the story about seeing him do – he does a Christmas show every year. Yes. And he brought Tony Bennett out, and they did a duet on uh, For Once in My Life, and it was just a – oh, 
What a moment. And by the way, just one quick addition here. He did uh, a concert in Detroit. It looked almost spontaneous because it was a sort of half barren stage and there were some tracks he was playing to um, for Joe Biden as part of the Biden campaign. It was just oh, prior to the election day. Yeah. Wow. And um, and of course, he just sounded amazing. Uh, amazing. He just has, hasn't lost a step. Hasn't lost a step. Amazing. Yeah. In this clip, Stevie Wonder talks about how he came up with the song Fingertips. Actually, it's an old tune that was... Uh we did in an album in 1961 when I first started with Motown. We began to do the tune on on stage, and I came up with some ad libs that we that I decided to just put in there. With everybody say yeah and all that kind of stuff just came from uh, just the, the response that I was getting uh, was a spontaneous thing, and I could never go back and do say another fingertips because fingertips was uh, victim of that particular uh, music era. From 1963, such a dynamic debut for a Motown artist. I would say that rates right up there with I Watch You Back by the Jackson 5 as one of the greatest first singles ever. What do you think about that, Christopher? Well, I have another take on this song because I loved this song and I played it more than a lot when I was a kid. And I think in terms of which songs made my mom crazy... At the time, I think Fingertips and Maybe She Loves You would have been her top two. I don't ever need to hear those songs again because I put them on the turntable with, you know, if you did the thing with the arm or you sort of pulled it off to the left and the song would just automatically keep playing over and over. Right. Yep. That was my childhood. (laughs) That's great. Hey, Christopher, do you know about that moment in Fingertips when the musicians are trying to figure out what's going on in the song? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Okay. One of the musicians, they get a little lost. When the song kind of breaks down about, I would say about halfway through Fingertips Part 2, and one of the uh, musicians yells out, what key, what key? Because they don't, (laughs) it's a live performance. Here, I'm going to play that. I'll play that right here. So there it is. <laughs> the guy's yelling out, what key, what key? And the piano's going, don't, don't. Like he's trying to find it himself. Not, not a good feeling on stage. No, not I can imagine. Feeling. Tom, Stevie says his music tells you the most about him. My music actually speaks in his closeness to me than anything that I could ever do. If you listen to the songs that I've written or the songs of others that I will record, you will hear how I feel. It is the only way that, I guess it's the deepest me, it's... Sometimes I feel that the people that listen to my music or the fans that I have are closer to me than some of the people that um, are my close acquaintances or friends. That's Stevie Wonder from 1976, Songs in the Key of Life, and I Wish, a very autobiographical song. That's Stevie Wonder as we celebrate the music of Motown on Famous Lost Words. From 1981, wow, one of the biggest Motown hits ever. Not personally one of my favorites, but it was a huge (laughs) song. Lionel Richie, a big Motown artist, with Diana Ross, an even bigger Motown artist, and Endless Love, 1981. Tom, we ran the longer version of our Lionel Richie interview with Marilyn Dennis in season five, but this is a Motown moment 
that we had to include in this special show. <laughs> Lionel talks about how it felt when he made his first visit to the new Motown headquarters in L.A., after being signed to the label. I want to talk to you about uh, the whole uh, Motown moving to Los Angeles and your first day at what Mot you call Motown, Motown University. University. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, you have to understand, I was a fan. Uh, and uh, being a kid, the front row of every Smokey Robinson concert or Temptations concert, and all of a sudden, here I am walking in the front door of the studio uh, on Famosa Street in, in L.A., mm -hmm. and there, and there's Marvin Gaye, there's Smokey Robinson, there's the Temptations, they were all in the room, and the guy came in, and they said, Hi, little brother. Welcome to Motown. Wow. And that was hard stop right there. How did you, how did you feel, though? Like, did you, did you feel that, oh, what am I doing here? Or, no. or I've really made it, and no. this is great. To show you the power of signing the Motown deal was it didn't phase us one moment that, that we were not going to make it. We signed the Motown contract. In other For words, sure. everybody that signed the contract, we thought at that time, right. was going to make it. We mm. didn't realize that hundreds of groups would come in and sign. They just didn't make it. But we just knew that the Commodores were going to make. We were around this kind of talent. That's Lionel Richie and the Commodores from 1977 in the very funky brick house. So, Lionel spoke to us, by the way, in that interview for about 90 minutes in the original version of that interview. We just played a few seconds of it this time around. Anyway, you can hear much more of that chat in episode 506. Still to come on part two of our Motown special, the stories behind the biggest hits of the Tempts and the Tops. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic as we remember the music of Motown and talk to the artists behind the songs. That's the Supremes from 1964 and Come See About Me, written by the songwriting team of Holland, Dozier and Holland. Tom, the songwriters behind so many Motown hits were the Holland brothers, Eddie and Brian, along with Lamont Dozier, they had 25 number one Billboard hits. Oh, <laughs> I know, including an incredible 12 number ones with the Supremes alone. This interview with Lamont Dozier is great. And you know what? He still goes to work writing songs every day. Boy. Yeah. The first hit they had with the Supremes was not the band's favorite song. It's a funny story about the Supremes. They were always... Uh... Uh, disappointed because uh, they figured they they always got the rotten material. And I'm going to say, you know, we had a roster of artists over there, 13 or 14 at the time. Supremes was at the bottom, you know. And then, like I say, six months to a year after we uh, did a couple of things on, they went from bottom to top, you know. <laughs> and uh, we walked out of the studio, matter of fact, and they were very disappointed in the, the song Where I Love Go, you know. Nobody thought it was a hit. I wrote it myself, you know, so, so I believed in it, you know. And it's what is this, what is this sound, you know, just baby, baby business, you know. I said, well, just, you know, mark my words, that's a, that's a hit. Yeah, hit, smick, you know, you know what I, and uh, then I started to wonder myself, <laughs> what have I done? Well, maybe this is a piece of, you know, whatever, sure enough. About two, three weeks passed, and Frank wasn't doing too hot, you know, but it was, it hit the chart. And all of a sudden, it seemed like somebody just opened the door and let it in, and it just, I think it sold some like three million copies, you know. Baby, 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 don't leave me. 
From 1964, Diana Ross and the Supremes, Where Did Our Love Go? It's amazing how Lamont Dozier went from being confident in his abilities to all that self-doubt to vindication in a matter of seconds in that clip. That's pretty funny. Well, you know, I think that song has very special meaning for Lamont. He's done a recording of it that's uh, done like a ballad, and it's beautiful. How sweet it is to be Marvin Gaye from 1965 and how sweet it is to be loved by you. I can't imagine the exhilaration of that time when those three young men, Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Eddie Holland, were writing and producing hit record after hit record. Man, those songs just last and last, too. You think about all the different artists from like yeah. Phil Collins to James Taylor who've done versions of those songs. Absolutely. They sure stand the test of time. Now, here is one of the odder ways to get a hit song. After that particular time, I was... Uh divorced i think and uh i was uh, just got involved with another girl she was a writer we were having a little spat and a little spat <laughs> it was a fight you know what i mean <laughs> and uh, she hollered some of one of us said stop in the name of love you know as corny as it may sound that's where it happened and we stopped the fight and laughed because it was so corny you know and, and uh i wrote the song right after that like I said, Eddie picked it up and finished it up, the lyric, you know. And Brian came in on the melody, you know. And another million seller was, you know, <laughs> born. The Supremes from 1965 and Stop in the Name of Love was spoken yeah. in a moment of heated passion and boy oh boy uh, all of a sudden both Lamont and his wife or his girlfriend just stopped dead and start laughing that someone said that in the middle of an argument well I just, I just want to know if they held up the hand if they did the hand thing right? yes <laughs> Christopher now we can't go any farther without talking about you um, having uh, collaborated with Lamont Dozier fairly recently so tell us about that well it, it's it's kind of funny how it happened. My good friend Luke McMaster, who's a, a very talented artist, he was in a band mm -hmm. called McMaster and James some years ago. I remember. Yeah, yes. he's a great singer. And he and his partner Aaron have been doing um, this thing called the Icons of Soul, where they go write with classic writers. They write a new song and do one of their oldest song, old songs in a new way. And one of those writers is Lamont Dozier. And they were going to write a song, and they needed some help with the lyrics. And he called me and said, hey, I, I, I really need your help with this thing. Can you? I have an idea for the song, but I don't know where to go with it. So he told me, you know, he wanted like an autobiographical song about Lamont's life and music. So I wrote this lyric called, um, My Life is a Song. And it's it's out there. And, it, and just seeing my name in brackets with Lamont beside it was, well, that was pretty cool. So what's the name of that song again? Because I've already seen the video of it. And just remind people where they can find that. That's on YouTube. And what's it called again? It's called My Life is a Song. Okay, let's keep going with Lamont. Tom, Lamont talks here about a creative all-nighter. Baby, I need your love. We used to, there was a place on 12th Street and, and, and West Grand Boulevard there in Detroit or a huge barbecue. Tops and I used to get some cold duck and barbecue and we used to stay up all night long and do an album in a couple of nights. It was just great to do it that way. Baby, I need your love. And, uh, I came out of one of those all-night sessions, you know what I mean? Baby, I 
1964 Baby I Need Your Love and the Amazing Four Tops with the even more amazing Levi Stubbs on lead vocals. What a vocalist he was. Let's keep going with our tribute to Motown here on Famous Lost Words. Lamont talks about how they worked. It was like a factory over there, you know. Everybody, you go in there, you had little rehearsal halls and rooms and stuff, and everybody was going banging, you know. You know, pianos were all over the place. It was a little roll of houses, you know. It was about oh, five or six houses. The reason why Barry bought the houses because the neighbors were complaining about because it, it was just the one house, the Hitsfield building. And so he bought out all the neighbors' houses, you know, so we could work, you know. <laughs> <laughs> From 1963, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, and Your Love is Like a Heat Wave. What a great song. Woo, I love that one. Yeah, I'm just loving them all. Let's get over it. I'll be fine. (laughs) Okay, so starting as a receptionist, then office manager, and then backup singer, Martha Reeves combined determination to get a break with a unique singing style to get a deal with Motown Records. With the Vandellas, a trio that eventually included her sister Lois, Reeves had a remarkable string of hits that still sound great to this day, starting with the Holland Dozier Holland song, Come and Get These Memories. Also Heat Wave, Nowhere to Run, Jimmy Mack, and their signature song, Dancing in the Streets. By the way, that Marvin Gaye song was also cut by the Mamas and the Papas not long afterwards, Tom's favorite band, Van Halen. And of course, don't forget the David Bowie and Mick Jagger version, which they performed at Live Aid. Right. And the Kinks. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. This interview with one of Motown's biggest stars begins with the early days of the group. Well, right after high school, uh, Rosalind Ashford and Annette Beard, Gloria Williamson and I rehearsed nearly every day working on a group. We wanted to be kind of like the Temptations at that time. We used to do a lot of gigs with them. And we'd compete with the guys, and I don't think there were very many other girls singing around Detroit at that time, except for the Marvelettes, and they were like number one all around the world. And, and uh, Motown came about. We wanted to get on that label, and we couldn't swing the swing the audition because at that time they weren't taking any more auditions. I think that one building they had on on the boulevard was uh, overran at that time. So I took the first day in our secretary position there. From that, uh, it led to a, a, an actual uh, background position. So I brought the two girls in, Annette Beard and Rosalind Ashford. We started doing background work, and we came up with Marvin Gaye's first album, uh, Stubborn Kind of Fella. Mary Wells didn't show up one day for a session, and I was there. So in doing the demo for Mary Wells, I wound up with the record, which was my first release on Gordy. <laughs> That's Nowhere to Run from 1965, Martha and the Vandellas. You know, it's great hearing these Motown legends talk about how they got their start and how they would have done anything to try to get their foot in the door. Stick around. Still more to come with Martha Reeves as well as Mary Wilson and Diana Ross of the Supremes. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words, heard in more than 30 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. If you're enjoying the show so far, we're guessing that you'll love many of the more than 80 past episodes of the show. Check out classic interviews with The Police, Blue Rodeo, Hart, Janet Jackson, Led Zeppelin, Foo Fighters, Erasure, Cher, OMD, ABC, U2, Lou Reed, and many, many more. Simply hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, 
back to our tribute to Motown as we listen to some wonderful interview clips with the great Martha Reeves. Martha tells how the songs and the bands were matched at Motown. There were a team of writers uh, that worked directly under Barry Gordy. And uh, if they didn't come up with product, Barry would write something and just take their artist from them. And they were assigned to different people. For instance, uh, at the time that they were recording uh, us on Heat Wave and Jimmy Mack, they were also recording Smokey Robinson. They were doing some things with Marvin Gaye. And they were also doing some things with the Marvelettes. And uh, each producer was assigned. They'd write a song and then they'd decide who they'd want to give it to and who they were assigned to. They'd make the adjustments. They'd either, you know, put the key in the proper place or they'd just cut a track and you sing to it. It was like um, an advantage to be hot at Motown, you know, during those times when the hits were being produced because you'd get them. Whoever was the hottest act would get... Uh, the top material. Reeves talks about some of the stars that she and the Vandellas worked with. Most of uh, my first appearances in London were with other acts. I remember when Herman and the Hermits were, were you know, new, and uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers. We were on the show together. Lulu used to have a group called The Lovers. Lulu and the Lovers. I met Dusty Springfield. We became very, very uh, close friends, and she was uh, influential in getting our first major TV special there with uh, Dinah Ross and The Miracles, Temptations, Stevie Wonder, and myself, Dusty Springfield. Quite a lineup, huh? Oh, yeah, that's amazing. What is it, Lulu? What did she say, Lulu and the Lovers? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Martha has some beautiful recollections about her early days, including traveling with the Supremes. We all loved each other. We'd go on the road and we'd have a station wagon, for instance, and the Supremes would ride on the seat going and we'd ride on the, in the window and then on the way back, they'd ride in the window, we'd ride on the seat, you know. We'd sell each other's programs. We'd help each other in their costumes. We'd carry each other's bags. Whoever had to go on first got a little help from, you know, it was, it was really a family. It was really a bunch of talented people put together and uh, it worked. The Motortown Reviews were the most exciting times of my life. We'd be on the bus with The Temptations, Mary Wells, The Miracles, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, The Contours, and The Spinners, mind you. And we'd all sing together, and we'd all irritate each other, you know, like a family. And I remember dates at the Brooklyn Fox with Murray the K, who has to be the greatest jock in the world, you know. He would give shows, and we'd get up at 8 o'clock to go and see a line formed outside the Brooklyn Fox. That's when I first met Dusty Springfield, her first trip to America. And... Uh, the Righteous Brothers would be sitting around a room waiting to go on, and there would be uh, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers or uh, Little Anthony and the Imperials. I mean, you know, groups that you grew and loved. I mean, you, you know, you're, you, you know, they're precious to me. The, the times we spent together at different theaters, you know, five and six shows. They don't do that anymore, thank God. But we used to do five and six shows and start as early as eight and get out at 12. And there would always be people there in line or waiting to say hello or just to give you flowers or to keep you going. Wow. You know, those are the earlier days. You can't trade them. Something about that story really touched me. I guess it was just, you know, like there were kind of kids goofing around while they were being superstars, right? Nineteen sixty-four, their biggest hit, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas dancing in the street. And you know, Martha Reeves, she still performs once in a while, as far as I know, and she has spent a lot of time in politics in Detroit. And she's also an advocate for artists trying to secure better wages and royalties. So she's really in there and she's still active. I'm so glad we had this interview because she really has a lot to say. Fantastic.
The Supremes from 1966 and You Can't Hurry Love. Boy, that music still sounds as great today as it ever did for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Tom, this is a fascinating interview with Mary Wilson, who we lost earlier this year at the age of 76. Mary, of course, was one of the original Supremes, along with Florence Ballard and Diana Ross. Now, her story is one of dazzling success and perhaps inevitable decline and business struggles that continued right up until the group was set to reunite in 1999 for a big tour, one that unfortunately fell apart midway due to slow ticket sales. Hmm. She had a remarkable down-to-earth take on a long career that began at age 17 with the Supremes, the trio that became the most successful female group in U.S. history. Here's Mary Wilson in the mid-80s in conversation with Nancy Krant. Mary, something I never realized before, you sang the lead on the first single ever released by the group that eventually became the Supremes, um, yourself, Diana Ross, and Florence Ballard. It was a song called Pretty Baby. Yes. (laughs) Why did it switch over then, once you were signed under Motown and became the Supremes? Well, that was, I tell you what, first of all, all three of us sang lead, lead, but uh, Barry Gordy said that he felt that Diane had the more commercial voice and wanted to use her on the majority of the lead. So, you know, we said, well, whatever it takes, get a hit record because we wanted a hit record. We said, okay, great. Not knowing that it would be years before we'd have a chance to really sing again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that basically that's the reason. Mm-hmm. You saw a lot of success in those years during the 1960s up until the time that Diana Ross left in 1970. You carried on the group after mm-hmm. that point in a in several reincarnations did you never feel the desire at that point that you wanted to branch away from that and go solo i mean it took you almost seven years after that point to finally do that oh oh i, I definitely wanted to go solo um I wanted the Supremes to survive basically in the seventies, and that's why I hired other um singers to take the Diane spot, so to speak uh I felt I wasn't quite ready to sing lead myself I had lost my confidence you wrote a book that Mm -hmm. was compiled from diaries that you had uh, put together since or had been keeping since you were 16 years old Mm -hmm. it was called Reflections was it not? not, now it was it was called Reflections but now it's been uh, renamed retitled Dream Girl Mm -hmm. My Life is a Supreme Mm mm-hmm and obviously, that's a takeoff of the of the, dream of the place. <laughs> sure, that's coming to town in the next little while too. You've seen it a few times yourself. Yes. Um, I think a lot of people were expecting you to perhaps be a lot more bitter mm. about your experiences yes. than you actually. I wonder why. Have. I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe some people have have been sort of brainwashed that uh, all the and all these different little stories you hear coming mm-hmm. out from all these other authors and from different mm-hmm. sources saying that all the terrible things that happened to the people that worked for Motown yeah. during the 1960s. You tend to be, even though maybe some things are going wrong, there's always better things that overcompensate for that. Well, I'm I'm very positive in in um, my approach to life. I always have been. I think the Supreme story is a fairy tale, and it's a wonderful fairy tale. If someone were to ask me, what would you like to be in your life? I'd say a supreme. Right now, I look back and I said, you know, I didn't realize it was as big as it was when it was happening. I mean, it's like the Beatles, Elvis, and the Supremes. I mean, it's, it's, it's that enormous. And I'm saying, my God, I was one, you know, or I am one. There's a great moment in a Motown song that directly references who we just spoke to. Back in my arms again, Mary Wilson. And uh, you can hear the pride from artists like Mary Wilson and Mary Wells talking about the Motown years. But you can also hear 
that it wasn't always easy being a small part of a very big stable of artists. Nineteen sixty nine, the debut single from the Jackson Five, and I want you back. What a song, huh? Mm-hmm. Tom, this short but fascinating Michael Jackson clip tells us the story of the early days of the Jackson Five and how they came to Motown Records' attention. We first started singing around the house. It was nothing to do to sing old folk songs like Cotton Fields Back Home. Then Jackie, Jermaine, and Tito decided to start a group. They started making harmony. The model and I came in. We didn't know what to call ourselves then, but we were, my father bought microphones and guitars, and we were rehearsing, and we called ourselves the Jackson Five, and we did a lot of talent shows, and we would always win. And one day, as the mayor's guest was Diana Ross in the audience, nobody knew it. We went up and we did the whole show, and when we finished, she came back and told us how good she liked it, and she took us to Motown. My first hit was I Want You Back, which sold two million copies. I'm loving these interviews. They are just um, illuminating, reaffirming. Uh, they bring back the the wonderfulness of the music, but also just they tell you so much more about the people who made that music, which is really what this show is all about. That's for sure, and it really speaks to the genius of Barry Gordy Jr. This is Famous Lost Words as we uncover interviews with the greatest names in music history. As a podcast, we are heard all over the world, and as a radio program, we are on stations across Canada. If you'd like to sponsor our show and get your message out to literally thousands of engaged listeners, email us, famouslostpod at gmail.com. That's famouslostpod at gmail.com. Still more to come on our Motown special with Diana Ross. From 1967, that's Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell with Ain't No Mountain High Enough. That's got to be one of my favorites. All the interviews in our Motown special fill in another part of the overall picture. And it is a truly wonderful portrait of the vision of one entrepreneur, Barry Gordy, a man with an incredible ear for talent and songs and the stars that he surrounded himself with. Now, a perfect example of one major star's journey is Diana Ross and the image of her singing on Smokey Robinson's porch as he rehearsed with his band Inside is so memorable. Mary Wilson's description of how Diana became the focus of the Supremes is revealing. And Miss Ross's role in the discovery of the Jackson Five, however important it may or may not have been, is rather significant for the brothers and for the label that they were signed to. Right. Now, in this short clip, Diana talks about the early touring days of the Supremes and the division of responsibilities. We had seven number one records in a row, and it went so that uh, every time we came back home uh, to Detroit, we were in the studio, we were unpacking, going back on another trip, and we were being booked, and we were making something like $600 a week and things like that. It were incredible amounts of money that we thought at that time, and uh, we decided we were going to run the group like a, a club. There was going to be um, a president, a secretary, and, and a, someone that's going to take the notes. And So I was in charge of costumes, and Mary was in charge of music, and Florence was in charge of uh, taking care of the money or something like that. She was very good with figures and money, you know. And by the time Florence had gotten back with us, by the way, because uh, we persuaded her mother that we were going to take care of her and that she would really do well in school that year and uh, <laughs> a lot of things like that, which she didn't do. And I know I know you own my heart and I want to say 
From January of 1970, Diana Ross and the Supremes and Someday We'll Be Together. And in that clip, you can hear the camaraderie there, just like you did in the Martha Reeves clip. And I'm sure those days were exhausting, and they didn't make a lot of money, but it was more than they'd probably seen at that point, but probably not nearly as much as they deserved. Nevertheless, all of those artists talk about what a great time the beginning of their Motown experience was. From 1966, The Temptations and Ain't Too Proud to Bag. Tom, The Temptations were one of the biggest and most consistent hit makers in Motown history. We've got an interview here from 1985 with Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, two of the voices who defined the sound of the band and the era. Now, Ruffin, just to clear it up for you, was the guy who sang lead on My Girl, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, and I Wish It Would Rain, among other right. songs. The original member, Eddie Kendrick, sang lead on The Way You Do the Things You Do, Get Ready, and Just My Imagination. And talk about contrast from song to song, huh? Yep. Now, Tom, I know you were on Brent Jensen's podcast called No Sleep Till Sudbury, where you do a top five songs that give you shivers, right? Yes, and you were on it too, yes. I was, and one of my top five was, ding, Just My Imagination. That's right. I remember you talking about that. That's a great episode, by the way. Uh, Brent Jensen on the podcast, No Sleep Till Sudbury, talking to you. And if you're even vaguely interested, I'm also on a recent episode of that show talking about the five songs that mean the most to me as well. Um, and it was so much fun to do. So check that out if you're interested. Now, at the time of this interview in 1985, the band had been brought back into prominence with the use of Ain't Too Proud to Beg in the film The Big Chill. Do you remember that scene in the kitchen? Yep. Unforgettable. And also, uh, around the time of this interview, Kendrick and Ruffin joining forces with Hall & Oates in an Apollo Theater concert. So this, um, <laughs> this is a pretty loose chat, to say the least, with the two singers on a day when I had a memorable meeting with them a little bit later. Oh, yeah. Okay, I definitely want you to tell that story, so everyone stick around for that. But first, Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin in conversation with Roger Bartel from 1985. The success that has happened over the last six months for you two guys, does it seem like a rebirth in a way? To me it does. It seemed like we uh, went around the horn, we did the 360 degrees, and uh, the same two songs that got us the hits at first are coming around again. It's the same two songs (laughs) are doing it again, yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're good songs, and they, they've definitely stood the test of time. I yeah. think so. They prove that. Evidently, yeah. the people think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you noticed a whole reinterest in Temptations music in the last, uh, I think about the last two years, and I think something that might have catapulted it was the movie The Big Chill. And uh, that had some Temptations music definitely on it. Definitely had an effect, yeah. And uh, a, lot of people, a lot of people who didn't know the Temptations music before were hooked onto it then, and a lot of people that had sort of forgotten about it Got yeah. that whole nostalgia thing back through mm-hmm. that movie. Say, yeah, remember that good music. We don't have music like that anymore. Well, it's basically something that they can hold on to. I mean, it's it, they go chase after the other music, and they say, oh, yeah, that's good, that's good. But then uh, they say, well, they I, come back we always home. got this here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a lot of people, when you think back, there was a lot of people conceived on the, on, the, on those records. <laughs> I don't know. Well, if, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's in the back seat or where, but, uh, you know, but... It, it, there's a lot oh, of people sure. grew up on those, you know? Sure. How does it feel doing those old songs live now on this tour? To think that, geez, we, we recorded these so long ago. Do they still sound fresh to you when you do them? Are there little things you can add to them? Yes, that's the whole thing. You can add things to them. But we don't add a lot. We just basically, basically keep it like it is because then we would change what has already happened. And it would be, I think it would be kind of bad. 
and the audience have a lot to do with it. You know, I'm talking about traveling a lot. Sometimes you're very tired, and, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, that's not, they don't have anything to do with it. So a lot of times it's the audience that can pick you up and make you feel like doing a better show, you know. Yeah, I like uh, Doing a little bit more, and adding something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's Daryl Hall, John Oates, David Ruffin, and Eddie Kendrick from 1985, The Way You Do the Things You Do. And what a great chat with Kendrick and Ruffin, two legendary members of of The Temptations. Christopher, you've got to tell your story. I've seen the video. You sent this to me the other day. We're going to post it (laughs) for everybody to see on Facebook. But it's you. What in God's name are you doing in this video? (laughs) (laughs) Well... You can see it if you go to our, our site um, on Facebook. Uh, I was very, very excited to interview Kendrick and Ruffin from The Temptations. I'd just been such a huge fan of them as a kid. And, you know, it's that thing if you meet people that, you know, inspired you musically when you're really, really young, how, how meaningful that can be. And when they got there, the record company guy took me aside and said, look, they're, uh, <clears throat> they're really, really not in a good mood. I, I, I don't know how this is going to go. <laughs> the last interview, the, uh, the interviewer mistook them for the four tops. Oh, <laughs> it's just like, God. oh, ouch. I, I, I'm like, look, don't worry, that's not going to happen. So we did the interview. And then I said, you know, guys, it's always been my personal dream to be able to dance with the temptations <laughs> they, they started laughing i said is there any chance that i could dance with you guys oh my they went, gosh sure so we rolled a video featuring um hollow notes along with kendrick and ruffin from the apollo and we needed oh. all the time we had because we had to like pull the chairs away and set up microphones so that i could dance with the temptations <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? It's a great little video because you got you guys start just like snapping your fingers and then you look like you're, you know, you're doing okay, but then it the, the video kind of jump cuts and you're right in there and you're dancing with, <laughs> you know, with Eddie and David and it looks fantastic and then you do that twirl at the end. Everyone, come for the dance lesson, stay for the twirl, okay? It is so much fun. Thank you. You're indulging me on this show, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) And you did say that that's one of your favorite moments from being a Much Music VJ, and I am not the least bit surprised. It's a great moment. So there you go, The Temptations with Eddie Kendrick, David Ruffin, with special guest Christopher Ward on Famous Lost Words. Tom, that does it for this week. Famous Lost Words created by Tom Jokic and produced by Adam Karsh. Executive producer Sarah Cummings. Special thanks to Mike Ben Dixon. It's heard in more than 30 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. To get caught up with more great moments like one of Lady Gaga's very first interviews or our Eddie Van Halen tribute or our All 80s show, subscribe to Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show. 